Well, good morning. Peace be with you. You know, coming into uh, this series, I knew my wife was, we were going to have a baby and uh, she's always kind of been right on time, right on schedule. And so I organized this series in such a way as to give the two most difficult parables in the series to our PhD professors and let them deal with it last week and this week. And God has a sense of humor. Uh, and they got the easy ones and I got the hard ones. This is a hard text. Like, it's hard. And the... <laughs> The more time you spend with it in some ways, the more difficult it becomes. We're in a series looking at the parables of Jesus, and for the last four weeks, we've been looking at parables about money and about gifts, and really parables about uh, what it looks like for, me to, for us to be a people who give, to give our money, our time, our energy. The parable today is, is not about what we should give. It's really like, what will we get in return? And the context for this parable is, it's pretty important to understand the parable. Uh, in chapter 19, this rich young man comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do uh, to get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the laws. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor. You do all these things, you'll get eternal life. And the guy's like, well, I've done all of that. Uh, so am I good? Essentially is what he asked Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, there's one more thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And we're told, Matthew tells us that the rich man goes away really sad. But Peter hears this and he kind of perks up and he says, Jesus, we've left everything. What are we going to get? You know, like, okay. And Jesus tells him, like, you are going to be blown away by what you get. They're going to be blown away by the rewards. Whatever you've given up to follow me, you're going to get a hundred times uh, in return. Whatever you've sacrificed, you're going to get a hundred times in return. And so Jesus tells them that, and then he instantly tells this parable. And he tells this parable not to reinforce that, but to really to temper what's brewing probably in Peter's soul and in the souls of the other disciples. Because when Jesus tells you, I'm going to give you all these things, and he did tell the disciples, and you guys are going to get to sit on some special thrones, and you're going to get to judge and rule. Like, we know that it started stirring stuff that wasn't good in their hearts. And we know this because later in chapter 20, kind of right after Jesus tells this parable, uh, the mother of James and John, she pulls Jesus aside and she says, hey, I know you, you love all of the disciples. I just have one little request, you know, from a frail old lady to you. Can you please give my sons the two best seeds in your kingdom? And the other 10 start to get indignant and they get angry. And we kind of get this sense that near the end of Jesus's earthly ministry that the disciples are starting to jockey for position and they're starting to debate and wonder, what reward am I gonna get? Is my reward gonna be better than their reward? How big will my reward? I've left all this stuff. They've only left that much stuff. What am I gonna get compared to everyone else? And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. And the story begins with the owner of a vineyard going to like a marketplace or a public square to hire some laborers to come and work for him. Now, these laborers in that day, uh, they would be near the very bottom rung of the social, social hierarchy. 
These guys were lower than household servants because they were itinerant workers. And what these guys would do is they would wait all day in the marketplace. They would, they would hope and hope and hope that someone would come and hire them because if they didn't get hired, they knew they'd have to beg. Now, probably the, the best, maybe not the best, but a modern day equivalent would be undocumented workers who stand on a particular street corner every day hoping that a contractor is going to swing by and offer them a job. So when the landowner shows up, the master he says, hey, I want you to come and work in my vineyard. Not only that, he agrees to pay them a denarius. And a denarius, it's, it's a generous wage and it's an honorable wage. I mean, it's not absurd. He's not saying I'm going to pay you $10,000. But he is saying, you know what? Dave's work, I'll pay you three or 400 bucks. How about that? It's a good wage. It's a wage that a Roman soldier would make. And so, of course, these guys who are here, 6 a.m., they got up at the crack of dawn. He, the owner hires them, agrees to pay them an honorable wage, and they get to work. But then Jesus says, at 9 a.m., three hours later, the master goes back to the marketplace and he hires some more. And when he goes back, we don't know why he goes back. Maybe he miscalculated. We don't know. But when he goes back, this time he tells them, go work the rest of the day and I'll pay you whatever is fair. So he doesn't make any promise of paying them a denarius. He just says, we'll settle it later, but I'll make sure you get paid right. The master repeats this process again at 12 noon, at 3 p.m., and then at 5 p.m. And when the workday comes to an end, and the time comes to pay the workers, the master does something that's fairly odd. It's strange. We're told in verse 8, Jesus says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And I just want to hit pause there for a second because that's kind of strange. I mean, it's not necessarily immoral, but it's certainly unorthodox. The guys who just showed up, go ahead and pay them first. The guys who've been here all day, pay them last. But it gets stranger because Jesus tells us that the workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and they each received a denarius. <laughs> so the guys who just showed up worked only an hour the master's like, here's 400 bucks for the hour of your time. Thanks. Well done. Now, the men who'd been hired earlier in the day saw this and their hopes started to rise, right? They look, they worked an hour and he's paying them a denarius. What's he going to pay us? Probably going to pay us two denarius. Maybe he's going to pay us three. Maybe he's going to pay us 10. You know, one of them's texting his wife, go ahead and buy the fridge. It was a good day, you know? <laughs> We read, though, in verse 10, we know this is what they're thinking because in verse 10, Jesus tells us, when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. So it's kind of the first place I want to stop, this complaint. Because the complaint is, 
this isn't fair. Like it's not fair for you to pay the guys who didn't even break a sweat the same thing that you're paying us, who got up early, who came and labored all day in the vineyard, 12 hours under the heat of the sun. It's not right. It's not the same. And paying us the same, you're actually treating us differently. And paying us equally, you're treating us unequally. I mean, if you break it down to an hourly wage, one guy's, you know, some of the guys made a denarius an hour and the other guys made about a twelfth of a denarius an hour. And we read this, and I don't know about you, but I can sympathize a bit with these guys' complaints. Now, the second job I ever had was at a pizza place down the road from my house. Uh, I could ride my bike to it. It was 15 and a half. And uh, when they hired me, they hired me at $4.75 an hour, minimum wage at the time. And I was, you know, stoked to have a job. And yeah, it was, I mean, you're making pizzas. It is what it is. So I'm doing this job. And while I'm working there, you know, they, they become a bit short-staffed. And they come to me and they say, do you have any friends looking for jobs? Like, we need some other people to cook. And it just so happened I had a really good friend who actually lived really close to me. Uh, so he could, you know, ride his bike or walk or whatever to go to work. And I said, hey, they need some more workers. You want to come? He said, sure. And so they hired him, and I trained him, and I kind of mentored him. <laughs> and then about three months after he was hired, we went together and we picked up our paychecks. And he basically inadvertently told me that he was hired at a dollar more an hour than I was. And I was, yeah, right? So I quit that day. No lie. I'm done. I was so bitter. I'm still a little bitter. Like we, we read this and we think, this isn't right. Like, it's strange. Because that's essentially what's happening here. And that's where you have to remember, first off, this is a parable. It's a parable. This isn't a lesson about how you should compensate your workers. It's not a lesson on the merits or demerits of unionizing. You know, this, this is a parable about the kingdom of God. It's not a lesson in microeconomics. It's actually a lesson about kingdom economics. And I'll tell you, the reason I struggle with this parable is I'm like, well, that helps a little bit, but this is still challenging. And the reason this is still challenging is because it seems like what Jesus is saying here is that in the kingdom of God, everyone gets the same trophy. You know, and I was raised in a home where we threw those trophies away, right? Oh, everyone got it. You know what that's worth? Nothing. But that seems to be what Jesus is saying. Doesn't matter. If you work all day under the hot sun, it doesn't matter if you show up at dusk. Everyone's paid the same. And the more I studied, this is what I realized. That is what Jesus is saying here. Like he's not saying anything other than that. And that's a really hard pill for us to swallow. It's hard to swallow because it goes against everything we know and we've experienced in life. The ruling convention of our world, the ruling conviction of our world, is that someone's compensation should be commensurate with their services they render, right? Your, your work should equal, or your wage should equal 
your work. And that's fine. That's good. That's right. That's how our economy functions. But Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of God, it's different. He's saying in the kingdom of God, like your, your pay is not always going to be tied to your work. And, and some people are going to work a whole lot harder. Some people aren't going to work as hard. Some people are going to work a whole lot longer. And some people are going to work really, really short periods of time. And in the end, they're going to get paid equally. And that just grates, I don't know about you, that grates against me. I mean, if you were to do this in this world, if, you, if you're a business owner here, or you're a boss and you determine people's salaries, and some of your employees, you pay the absolute bare minimum, you have to pay them. And then you pay other employees 10 times the bare minimum for the same work. Like you better hire a good lawyer and a good PR firm. Because everyone's going to see it and they're going to assume, all right, there's, some, there's something shady going on here. Like there's some kind of weird discrimination. You can't people, pay people the same salary for drastically different levels of work. And yet here Jesus is telling us, I know, but that's, that's basically how the kingdom of God works. Doesn't matter if you serve God for 60 years and you live a radically sacrificial, generous life. Doesn't matter if you live a self-absorbed, decadent life for your first 60 years and then you turn to him on your deathbed. Either way, if you answer the master's call and you show up to the vineyard, you're gonna get paid. And they're asking how? You're paying us unequal. This isn't fair. This isn't just. And what Jesus is saying here, what the master says here is just because, here's the big picture, just because I'm paying you unequally doesn't mean it's unjust. And it doesn't mean it's unfair. Well, how could this be? Well, this is the second movement. The workers complain, the master's response. When the workers bring their claim to the master, we read, in verse 13, uh, and they bring this complaint. They say, this isn't right. We're told that he answered one of them, friend, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Now, when you read this, it seems like the master is getting a little technical here. And it almost seems like he's like, hey, didn't you read the fine print? Like you signed in the terms and services of agreement, you signed this. It's like, I'm not being unjust. I paid you what I agreed to pay. This isn't unfair. And technically he's right, but, but if we just stop right here, it still seems a little like, but why would you do this? Then the master continues. He says, I wanna give to the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous. You know, and all of the free market capitalists in the room, that's their life first. Like, don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? It's like, yes, this is, that's not what he's getting at. And really what the master does here, it's brilliant. Because in just these two sentences, he reframes the whole conversation. He, he turns the situation on its head. And what he tells these workers is you've been thinking about this all wrong. 
Like you've been thinking about this in terms of fairness and justice, but of course I'm just. I paid you what I agreed to, but this isn't a matter of me being just. This is a matter of me being generous. Here's where things change. You know, up until this point in the parable, the master's been a bit of a strange figure, right? Like there's a silhouette, a spotlight behind him. He's a silhouette and he's just kind of strange. One, the owner of a, being, for being the owner of a vineyard, it doesn't seem like he knows how to run a vineyard. And he has to keep going back and hiring more and more people. Two, he obviously hasn't been doing this for long. At least that is what it would seem because if word gets out, hey, if you work for that guy at 6 a.m. or 5 p.m., he's going to pay you the same. Everyone's going to be showing up at 5 p.m. to the marketplace. Like the master seems strange. He seems eccentric, bizarre. And what happens in these verses, as Jesus is telling the story, it's like the spotlight that was behind him moves around, you know, pans around to the front of him. And it shines on his face. And when it shines on his face, he's not some angry, eccentric person who's trying to teach some weird lesson. His face is warm and welcoming, and it's radiating with an air of goodness and kindness. He says, can I help these guys? Can I use my money? Can't I make a sacrifice to help them because they're in greater need? It's something I, I picked up in studying the text this week, something I'd never seen before. But you know, in verse six, when the master, he keeps going back to the market over and over again. And when he goes back at five o'clock, he asks them a question. He says, why, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? And it sounds like that's an indictment, but I think it's just the way it's translated. This isn't an indictment uh, in the way Jesus told the story, but it is a question. The master's like, why haven't you been working? And what do the men respond because no one's hired us. Now, this is going to take just a little bit of imagination and just a little bit of speculation, but I don't think it's much. Why would they have not been hired all day long? Like if they showed up early in the morning like everyone else, why would no one have hired them? Well, I mean, just think about it. If you're hiring day laborers, and you want to get the best bang for your buck, who are you going to hire? They're going to hire the strong, probably the young, the energetic, those who are in shape, those who have skills, the people who are left at 5 p.m. who haven't been hired. They're probably old. They're probably weak. Some of them are probably uh, disabled or unskilled. They're the people, I mean, regardless, we have to agree, like they're the bottom of, of the barrel when it comes to who you want to pick to work in your vineyard. And the master shows up at 5 p.m. knowing the workday ends at 6, and he's like, hey, come on. You want to come work? You can come work in my vineyard. Before these laborers can even work up a sweat, <laughs> he pays them a full day's salary for what was most likely below average work. What does this tell us about the landowner? The landowner, the, the master, he represents God in this parable. 
teaches us he didn't hire these people because he needed more laborers. He hired them because he needed the work. And hiring them, he wasn't thinking profit. He was thinking people. And the grumbling workers, they looked at them in terms of what they could contribute. I mean, that's the claim, right? Their productivity, their merit. What have they done? They haven't done anything. Like, you know how many grapes I picked? Look at what, they they haven't even finished a bush. I've done an acre. Like, how much have they done? Productivity. The master saw the latecomer as people in need who he could help. And he knew if he didn't help them, they'd be begging for bread. And in this parable, Jesus is not saying that those who do the least will be rewarded the most. Nor is he saying that God is arbitrary in our dealings with us. What Jesus is saying here and what he's trying to teach his disciples and us is that God is abounding in grace and generosity to the point where it won't even make sense sometimes. This grace and generosity, it doesn't just, it's not just reserved for those who show up the earliest and work the hardest and contribute the most and sacrifice the most. I mean, if it was, that wouldn't be grace. Like his grace goes to people who show up late at 5 p.m. or the thief on the cross who says, remember me. And Jesus is like, you know what? Come on in. His grace extends to people who drop the ball repeatedly, like Peter, right? Who, again and again in the Gospels, you see all this potential, and then he just trips and falls, or he sticks his foot in his mouth, or he does something dumb. God's grace extends well beyond what we can imagine. And I think what Jesus is saying in this parable, it, it ends. Well, I know that's what he's saying in the parable. The parable ends with this verse, and it's cryptic, and it's enigmatic, and it's one of these things, the longer you stare at it, the more challenging it becomes. He says, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Verse 16. Now, what's interesting is the very end of chapter 19, so right before Jesus tells this story, he tells his disciples, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. He tells them this right after the rich young man sent away. And I think what he's saying in verse 30 of chapter 19 is, yeah, this guy, he might be first in the world. The world might look at him and say, gosh, he's got it made. and might look at you who don't have a dime and look, think, gosh, those guys, those guys are poor and they're bums, whatever. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. In the kingdom, a lot of those guys who seem first, they're going to end up last. And a lot of people that the world counts as last, they're going to be first. But then here in verse 16, Jesus flips it. It's subtle, but he flips it. Instead of saying the, the first will be last and the last will be first, he says the last will be first and the first will be last. I know it's confusing. It's cryptic, enigmatic statement. But I think what Jesus is getting at in context of this parable, well, think about it. In a foot race, how can the last be first and the first be last? 
they all cross the finish line at the same time. And I think what Jesus is saying here, he's tempering what he said earlier. And he's saying, listen, in the kingdom, like, yeah, yeah. There are going to be people in the world who seem glorious, but they never actually respond to the master's call. They're going to end up last. But in the kingdom of God, we're all going to cross the finish line at the same time. We're all going to get the same trophy. We're all going to get the reward. And this is hard. And I know some of you are like thinking, what about rewards in heaven? And I think that's a valid question, and I don't really have a good answer for it other than the reward of heaven is eternal life. Like, anything beyond that, I don't, like, we get God, okay? So I know that there's some statements that point to it, but in the end, we get God. Like, I don't know, like, a new car, like, that's thrown in, like, okay. (laughs) Like, what's the reward? I I don't know, and I'm being honest, so it's a rabbit hole you can get sucked down. But I think what Jesus is saying here is, man, my grace, it's going to go out and anyone who answers the call, they're going to get that reward. And the reason is because of my grace, because it's not contingent upon what you do. It's contingent upon who I am and my generosity. And it's hard for us But when you actually contemplate this parable, you realize no one got ripped off in this. None of the workers got ripped off. Like, none of the workers got the short end of the stick. Those who'd worked the longest complained the master wasn't being fair. They're saying they'd been ripped off. They hadn't been ripped off. There's only one person who ended the day poorer than when they began, right? Who's that? It's the master. He was the only one who made a financial decision that was actually costly. If you would have just paid them what they deserve, it's still a good investment. But you start throwing out denarius, you know, guys who work only an hour, like you're going to go broke soon. I think that's where it's so important to remember that grace, because here's the thing, we, we talk about grace a lot in this church. And Christians, we, we, we sing about grace, and I think people, oh, I love grace. We kind of like grace. We like it for ourselves, but then when grace is shown to other people or we start to actually consider <laughs> the scandalous and radical claims of God's grace, then it makes us uncomfortable. And it makes us, un- well, does that mean that sin doesn't matter? No, it doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. Like, grace doesn't mean that God looks and says, you know what, who cares? Grace means that God looks and he sees the debts and then he takes it on himself like the owner of this vineyard. And what's so interesting is right after this parable, I mean, the next verse, after he says the last will be first, the first will be last, Jesus tells his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples didn't get it because we know they didn't get it because five minutes later, they're arguing, all right, so who's going to sit where? Like, what are we going to get? And so Jesus tells us this to say, in the kingdom of God, the economy is grounded in grace. The kingdom of this world, it's grounded in merit. And that's fine. This isn't an indictment on worldly economies. Instead, 
It's a challenge and an invitation to say, if you're going to understand the kingdom of God, you have to see that just because that's how this world works, that's not how my kingdom works. God is abounding in grace. So we have the worker's complaint. We have the master's response. The last thing is what I would call the provocation. Like Jesus' provocation. Because if all Jesus wanted to teach us here is that God was abounding in grace, he could have told the story in such a way to have the men, the master pay the men in the order they were hired, right? If he just wanted to say God's abounding in grace, could have easily done it. Hey, pay the first guys a Daenerys when they leave, pay the second guys hired a Daenerys, third guys, fourth. We would have got the point. The master is exceedingly generous. But Jesus, he goes out of his way to construct this story to make sure that everyone sees that everyone got the same reward. Why does he do this? Because he's Jesus. Because he's telling us a story. Because he wants to expose something in us. And he also wants to teach us something. What does he want to expose? I think he wants to expose the pride and self-righteousness in our hearts. The reason we struggle with this parable, the reason we struggle with grace, is because, you know, when, when Kathy read the story for us, when we read the story, when we put ourselves into it, every single one of us, we always put ourselves in the shoes of those who are hired at dawn. Like there's just something about the pride, the self-righteousness, the self-justice. There's something in us that when we read the story, we think, well, of course, I'm the person who showed up at the crack of dawn and I worked so hard. The reality is, we're all the people who showed up at five. (laughs) We didn't bring anything into this. And some of you are like, well, I've been following Jesus since I was nine. Well, great. But let's just step back for a minute Let's think of cosmic history. Let's think of church history. You're five o'clock, but I've sacrificed a lot. Okay, have you buried your children on the mission field? Like maybe you've sacrificed, and I don't want to diminish that. What I'm trying to say is there's something about us that we want to look, well, I've been following Jesus longer. I've done this. I've served in this way. Like we want to pull ourselves and say, we obviously belong to those who've worked the hardest and the longest, and the reality is, no, we don't. Like we're all the 5 p.m. guys. We're all the ones who are stumbling into the kingdom. We don't have any skills to bring. Like all we're bringing is our sin and our dysfunction, our brokenness, usually a lot of baggage as well. And Jesus says, come on in. I'll hire you. We come into the kingdom with empty hands. God doesn't owe us anything. I mean, that's Paul's big point. Romans 6, the wages of sin, like what we've earned is death, but the free gift is eternal life. And for the believer, man, all of life is grace. Everything is grace. And if you, if you really want to make the case that you are the person who showed up at 6, fine, that's still grace. Don't... <laughs> Don't kid yourself. 
If the master didn't show up in those people's lives, the guys who showed up at 6 a.m., if he didn't appear and put a call, they'd be begging. Like just him inviting them to come work in his vineyard and giving them work so they can provide for their family, that's grace. See, I think Jesus, he wants to expose in us how pride and self-righteousness, how just, how deeply ingrained it is in us. And that's why we struggle with grace and that's why we struggle when God shows compassion to people we don't deem worthy. That's what he's trying to expose, but he's also trying to teach us something. And what he's trying to teach us is connected with that. And that's this, that grace will not prevail in our lives until every notion of proving our worthiness or our merit is put to death. Grace will not prevail in our lives until every ounce of thinking we have that somehow we do something to merit God's love is destroyed. And as long as we think that our efforts are gonna earn a little bit more of God's love, that's why I'm even a little uncomfortable talking about like rewards and heaven being icing on the cake. The minute we start thinking that, what happens? What kind of icing am I gonna get? What kind of icing are they gonna get? How much icing am I gonna get? And if we're gonna, if we're gonna flourish in the kingdom of God, we've gotta be able to say, all right, it's not about merit. Like it's just not. And praise God, it's not. See, as long as we, we envision God, here's what happens. Here's why this is so hard. I mean, I've wrestled with this text. This is one of those ones, oh, this is easy. End of the week, I don't know what this means. <laughs> like the parables of Jesus are kind of like that. I think what happens in the Christian life, the reason we struggle with grace, especially those you've been following Jesus for a long time, is over time, like because you've been there, people are hired after you and you look at them and you've had 10, 20 years to grow in holiness and sanctification and you forget what it was like to be the person who just come to faith and was an absolute bonehead. Now you're just a minor bonehead. They're a major bonehead. And you look at them and you think, gosh, really? And what happens is over time, like we, we want to drag meritocracy back into the kingdom. Like there's still some of it, Right? There's something that I do. There's something I contribute. But as long as we do that, like we don't experience freedom and joy, as long as we envision God hunched over some ledger, you know, marking our good deeds, check, minus, check, minus. As long as we do that, we're going to spend our lives playing the comparison game with one another. And the master ends with the question, are you envious because I'm generous? And a lot of us would say, yep. <laughs> I'm envious because they got things that I deserve. They got the same thing that I got and they don't deserve it. When you go the way of merit, it leads to comparison, to pride, and to envy. And what Jesus desperately doesn't want in the heart of his disciples is envy. Why? Because envy sucks the joy out of life, right? When you spend your life comparing it to other people, I mean, sometimes it's, you, you can find pleasure in it, like the pleasure that comes with pride and feeling superior, but usually what happens when you play the comparison game is it sucks the joy out of your life and you can't celebrate what you have. 
I mean, these workers, they, got paid. they could go home and provide for their family and have a meal. Envy sucks the joy out of life. The other thing that envy does, and this is why Jesus is telling the parable the way he is, is he wants to see that envy destroys relationships. Because when you go the way of merit, how can people be anything other than competitors? And what do you do with competitors? You try to beat them. Now, Paul encourages us to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. You know what envy does? It causes us to weep when others rejoice. And it causes us to rejoice when others weep. Lastly, envy, what it really, like the end of the matter, envy embitters us. Envious people are grumbling people, and envious grumbling people are miserable people. I don't know about you, I read this story and about these guys, and I just can't help but think of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. You know, the prodigal didn't earn it. The father's just like, hey, I love you. Here's, here's the fatted calf and the ring and the robe. And the older brother, he gets bitter, Right? That's not fair. He's still playing the game of merit. And where the older brother went wrong, because the father says to him, remember what the father says to him? He's like, son, you've been with me always. Like, and everything I have is yours. And like when we play the comparison game, you know, I think often what happens is we forget that the Christian life is about knowing God and he's a good father. And I think a lot of us are like the elder brother, maybe who, who we just forget that sometimes. You know, when we think about, look at all I've sacrificed for the kingdom. Awesome. Praise God. If it was sacrificial generosity of the church, I'd doubly praise you, right? But, but when we say that, what, when, when we get bitter, look at all that I've done. It's like we forget you think there's something better? You think it's better to stand in the marketplace than it is to work in the owner's vineyard? Do you think the prodigal had it better longing to eat the pods that the, he was feeding the pigs than the older brother who was safe in the master's home? Jesus says, don't play the comparison game. It leads to envy. And listen, the way to, play, the way to put envy to death is not stop envying. That was the first iteration of the sermon. Stop envying, it's bad for you. But telling you to stop envying is not gonna work. Only way you're gonna stop envying is when you realize that all of life is grace. You know, in my house, five kids now, just had a birthday. Birthdays are notoriously difficult in my house. Presents come, they get wrapped, we set them out, and one kid is extremely happy and the other four are fairly bitter. Varying levels of degrees of being able to hide their bitterness. Right? Why do they get that? They don't deserve it. That's the way a lot of us live. You know what day is amazing in our house? It's Christmas. <laughs> you know why? Because there's presents under the tree for everyone. And my kids on Christmas, at least not yet, they're not comparing, I got this and you got that. They're all like, you got that? That's awesome. I got this. This is awesome. It's great. None of them are sitting there, you know, with a notepad. Well, I know this costs this much on Amazon.com, adding it up. <laughs> Instead, they're saying, this is great. 
because it's all a gift. And too often we live like it's a birthday and we, we forget it's always Christmas, like for believers. Like we've all given, been given so much more than we deserve. That's why Jesus, he gives us this meal. He says, as often as you gather together, I want you to remember my body that was broken for you and my blood that was shed for you, that was poured out for you. He wants to remind us that spiritually we were all dead and the only way we could be brought back to life would be for Jesus to die in our place. And so when we come to the table, we remember that he took our sin, he took what we deserve, and he gave us what we don't deserve. And so we can come to the table, we can confess our sin, we can confess envy, bitterness, jealousy, pride. And we can entrust ourselves to a better way of life, a life where God the Father, he's not just some cruel taskmaster, just demanding more and more. He's ultimately a loving Father who's blessed us beyond what we can comprehend. Let me pray.